0: Hello, and welcome to the Purdue Ag Econ podcast, the podcast for experts and innovators in agriculture. I'm Abby Meyer. And on today's episode, Dr. Kilders and I discuss issues in rural broadband with Dr. Roberto Gallardo. Stay tuned.
1: Welcome, you're listening to the Purdue Agricultural Economics podcast. I am your host, Valerie Killers, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Abby Meyer. Hello, Abby, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Doing pretty well. Did you enjoy the homecoming weekend? I did. My dad came up with a few of his friends, so it was great to see them. That's awesome. Yeah, Yeah, you got to do that. Now, we're both very excited to welcome Dr. Roberto Galato to our podcast. Roberto is not only an associate professor in our department, but he is also the director of the Purdue Center for Regional Development. Welcome to the podcast, for Roberto.
2: Thank you. Pleasure to be here this morning.
1: So how are you doing?
2: I am doing well. A little bit chilly for the walk, but it's, it's nice.
1: Yeah, the fall is coming in. <laughs> I was excited to break out my jacket this morning. <laughs> yeah, so in preparation of this podcast, I read up a little bit on you, and I have to say, you've got some very impressive accolades under um, your belt. Thank you. Um, thank you. Now, would you maybe mind telling our listeners a little bit about your background and what your general work is for Purdue?
2: Sure. So I am a native of Mexico, came to the U.S. a while back. I won't say the years, not age myself. I've been working in rural economic development ever since. I have a master's in economic development and a Ph.D. in public policy. And I've been in the field since the beginning of my career. So working a lot with rural communities around community development, economic development, and over the past 10 to 12 years on regionalism as well. So that's kind of a little bit of a elevator speech on my background.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Well, <laughs> you just mentioned you've been working a lot on regional development, on regional communities, and that's the reason why we really wanted to invite you out today, because one topic that's really of interest right now is trying to understand high-speed internet in rural areas. So Could you maybe tell us a little bit about what these obstacles are that we're encountering with high-speed internet in rural communities?
2: Sure, so the digital divide has been an issue for for a long time. The main barrier that rural communities face when it comes to broadband infrastructure is lack of density. The return on investment is simply not there. So they need help or the providers need help with either subsidies through grants and to make that ROI work. Otherwise, the density is not there. You have a couple homes here and there, you know, scattered around the countryside. So that's the number one issue that rural communities face in attracting broadband investment is the lack of density and the lack of ROI. But there are multiple programs that can help. So I think that we are now in a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to really get these rural communities online with affordable and adequate connectivity.
0: With that, which ways do you see there could be an improvement with the digital divide in rural communities or developing areas?
2: So as you both know, pre-COVID, the socioeconomic landscape was digitizing really quickly. And if you're on the wrong side of the divide, then you're going to have a lot of problems that result ultimately in quality of life impact negatively. COVID brought this awareness that's been among several of us just surfaced to the top. And the post-COVID world is going to be more digital than the pre-COVID world. So it is very important to address this issue. It's a very complex issue. It's not very easy to resolve, but I think that that's a barrier that we have got to address definitely on the rural side. The other two components that are often overlooked when you're looking at digital inclusion or digital equity is devices and digital literacy. So you have infrastructure, devices, and literacy, which are kind of the three-legged stool to really make any community, urban or rural, what businesses have known for a while, which is digitally transform.
1: Interesting. Could you elaborate a little bit on these last two components as someone who's not too familiar with this, you would think that is something the individual might be able to overcome relatively easy because there's no infrastructure (coughs) that needs to be installed. But what are some factors that also block the advancement on these two other components?
2: Sure, the infrastructure piece needs to be coupled with adoption. Otherwise, the investment is not sustainable. And so the issues around devices varies. Many low-income families cannot afford multiple devices or their devices are not reliable. They break down constantly. There was a study made where college students were found to be more stressed out and had lower grades because of their devices. That's one component of the devices. The other one is for older adults, devices may not be the most conducive way to using the internet or digital applications because the screens are too small or the fonts or or stuff like that so we have different nuances depending on the age group you look at that's on the device front on the digital literacy front it has been shown that if you only rely on a mobile device to use the internet you undermine the the potential of the technology because of limited data plans but also smaller screens try getting a high schooler to complete a final paper, using only their smartphone. So there are those issues, but then there's also those that may not use the internet like they could because they don't feel comfortable and they don't feel safe. That's where digital literacy comes into play. I make this joke with my teenage daughters because they are digital natives. So there's these interesting terms, digital natives and digital immigrants. Digital natives are anybody that was born after the iPhone, give or take. Digital immigrants are those of us that were born before the iPhone because we have had to learn how to use devices and so forth. But the fact that you are a digital native does not mean you have digital literacy that's relevant to your work, right? Or just to do social stuff. For example, many times we see younger folks that are very savvy with social media, but they are not very familiar with email, for example. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the work environment and you see that there's a lot of use of email, like it or not. It's the oldest technology, but it is there. So there's a lot of nuance on the digital literacy piece as well.
1: It's a great point you're bringing up because I think a lot of us forget. we thinking like, oh, everyone that's young, they know how all of this works. But there is more than just knowing how to open an app or record a Correct. video, whatever it is. The specific skills you need for these different situations.
2: Correct. There's another thing that's called the app syndrome among the younger generation, which is they expect everything to load immediately. And they're not patient. I'm not generalizing, but what <laughs> happens is that they have the app syndrome with anything. That affects you know, their soft skills, teamwork. They may be not as patient with their coworkers. So there's there's a lot of evolving research on this front. If you want a community to be digital inclusive be able to compete in the digital age, you have got to hit those three components.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about Purdue's Center for Regional Development's work with the Build Back Better Regional Challenge?
2: Yeah, we were fortunate enough to be selected by EDA, Economic Development Administration, to evaluate and research the impact of an investment across 21 coalitions and it totals $1 billion. So we are now getting ready to conduct it. We just completed the evaluation framework. It's been approved by EDA. What we want to do at the end of the day is just monitor the progress of the coalitions. Each coalition has between two and eight projects, so it is a very complicated process. But we are excited because at the end of the day, we want to be able to tell the story for each of the coalitions but then also to aggregate so EDA can tell an overall story about that. On the research side, it's a very unique opportunity to test on place-based regional development policies and see if those coalitions did in fact do better than those that were not intervened. That will have tremendous implications in regional development theory.
1: So how were these coalitions then chosen? So
2: that was entirely EDA. There were 60 finalists That went through a year-long process and they ended up selecting 21. I don't know the criteria as to why they were selected. They had to fit certain criteria like inclusive growth and economic competitiveness. They had to target typically disadvantaged regions and populations, so we don't know the formula that was used to select them. They just notified us, okay, here you go. Here's your 21 coalitions ranging from Alaska to Florida. So,
1: Okay, interesting. So with this Build Back Better challenge or regional challenge that's there and the coalitions you're talking about, relating that to these issues with rural broadband that we have, my very basic understanding of this issue is that A lot of these funds are given out on the basis of maps that were designed that show the coverage and based on whether there is a lack or not, then interventions are started. Could you maybe explain a little bit about what these maps exactly show and how they are actually created?
2: The Build Back Better Regional Challenge, I do not recall, but very few of them are getting into the broadband infrastructure space specifically that's because eda has traditionally not funded that Mm -hmm. there's a lot of agencies and programs at the federal level that are already dealing with broadband infrastructure what the build back better challenge does is at a regional level it does hint at this upskilling that is needed among certain workers due to the digital age and adoption of technology and so forth so i just wanted to clarify that but then back to the broadband infrastructure piece there is a massive amount of money coming down, $42.5 billion coming down to be distributed throughout the states, and the areas that are going to be eligible for that funding are based on a map. The map that has been typically available has a lot of limitations. So for example, in the past, internet service providers would report their availability where they are but they reported it at the census block level, which is the smallest unit that the census compiles demographic information. If you're in Manhattan, it's a very small census block. If you're in rural Wyoming, it can be up to two square miles. The problem with that is the providers would say, yes, we serve your house in the corner of that block, and so the entire block would be considered served. You would leave out all these other addresses within the block. So that by nature, easily overestimates coverage. That's the data we've been using for years. The BEAD program, which is the 42.5 billion, they're trying to do a brand new map from scratch. We're hoping it'll go okay, but instead of using census blocks, it'll use address level structures or units. So that's as granular as you can get. So it's two phases of that. One is the fabric map, where the Federal Communications Commission is going to provide a map where every potential unit can be serviced or should be serviced with broadband. Once you come up with the final fabric map where you're not including an abandoned structure, then comes providers saying, we do offer service here, here, and there. After that, there's a challenge. And then at the end of the day, you have a brand new map which is called broadband serviceable locations or BSLs. That's gonna be used to then direct the forty two point five billion dollars in funding.
1: So it's a nationally guided process, but you have local stakeholders?
2: There should be community engagement and validation at the local level. And the state needs to come up with a five-year plan to use their portion of the 42.5 billion. That plan is driven extensively by community engagement.
0: How has the Purdue Center for Regional Development's collaboration with Indiana Farm Bureau increased reliable broadband to the most underserved communities in Indiana?
2: So Purdue as a land-grant university has an advantage in that we have the extension service. The extension service reaches all 92 counties in the state. So what we've done is because of this data, this challenging piece, The FCC asks, do you have data to challenge what provider X is saying? Other than word of mouth, because I get that a lot. The neighbors know broadband is terrible starting from that street over there, but I need more than that. So that's where Farm Bureau had the vision to hire a company called GeoPartners that developed a speed test map. So Farm Bureau is pushing that out along with PCRD and extension to get people and homes to complete speed tests, as many as possible, not one, not two, a lot. That data then can be used potentially to challenge what the providers are saying. What is broadband, right? The federal definition says you are served with broadband if you have a download speed of 25 megabits per second down and 3 megabits per second up. That's the old definition. The new one that's not official yet is 100 down and 20 up. So if a provider says you're served, that area is ineligible for funding. Well, what about if the neighborhood comes back and says, well, look at the speed test, we are not mm-hmm. served at 100 over 20. So that's where this dynamic comes into play. How do we get folks to complete the speed test or to report in the form they do not have access is through local partners like Extension.
1: Now you were just talking about these <clears throat> upload and download speeds. To put it into perspective, when you're comparing an urban area like West Lafayette, Indiana, <laughs> maybe not the urban hub, but just to compare this with, if we are going a couple miles out in the rural area, how do these download speeds compare?
2: So we have access to the Farm Bureau speed test data. We have access to the UCLA platform, which is another speed test. That one is global. I can tell you for a fact, That the minute you live in corporated areas or city limits, the speeds plummet because the technology is not the same that is used because of a lack of density, right? And because the, the faster it may be available, but it's more expensive. There is a direct correlation between density and speeds, right? The faster the speeds, the more likely you are in dense areas now. There are some states, like Minnesota, that have done a phenomenal job of wiring their rural communities with fiber optics, which is one of the broadband technologies that can offer very fast speeds, both down and up. Then you get into the symmetrical issue. You may have great download, but you may have very crappy uploads. And the way I use to get folks to understand this asymmetrical service, it's like going down a dirt road versus a six-lane highway.
1: So is there anything that Indiana does different than other states?
2: So Indiana launched their Next Level Connections broadband program back in 2019. And if my numbers are not wrong, they've invested about $250 million thus far, connecting 70,000 Hoosiers to internet that otherwise they would have not had. They're still building. Not all 70,000 have it available right now. It's a long process. Indiana has that program. They also launched last year a program called Indiana Connectivity. The Indiana Connectivity program provides a call center and a website where you can go and say, I don't have internet, I would like internet. So that kickstarts a process and it goes through a complicated process of challenges. But at the end of the day, the addresses that survive are put for bid. And then providers come in and bid for those addresses.
1: Interesting. Have you seen any impact of that yet? Any changes? Yeah, they're
2: now in round three. When I was with the Office of Community and Rural Affairs down in Indy helping them launch these programs, they have connected about 250 or 300 homes have been bid on and now they're being built to get broadband. You may think it's not a lot, but those homes are typically the ones that are harder to reach. So if you're hitting 200, 300 by round three, I think that's a very good number.
0: What are some initiatives at the state and local level to ensure that agriculture properties receive the consideration in this endeavor?
2: We need farmers and we need them to be the squeaky wheel. When I was down in Mississippi, the neighboring state of Alabama came up with one of the first broadband programs in the nation at the state level. The senator that launched it was a farmer. And the reason was because he was fed up with the poor connectivity, no options, very expensive, unreliable, you name it. What I tell communities is, if you have a a large farming community, mobilize them. Get them to complete the speed test, to apply to ICP, to spread the word. Okay, we need to address this. So that's how local initiatives can be mobilized. Of course, Extension is another one that, that can help in that respect, but we need farmers Because we all know with Precision Ag and all those technologies, many times they buy a machine. They cannot use all their bells and whistles because they don't have connectivity. So we need them to speak up. We need them to document that. And we need them to channel that through their associations and so forth.
1: Now, with this new endeavor of going by the address level to supply internet, there's obviously a difference between saying, I'm going to provide a residential home with internet versus this farming address, it's scale-wise very different. How are they overcoming these ginormous differences?
2: So we also did not discuss broadband technology. There are a couple of them. One is fiber optic, which is glass. You beam light through it. And from a physics standpoint, it has unlimited speed because you're pushing light. What limits the speeds or the bandwidth is the electronics. Then you have cable or coax, which is a kind of a hybrid between fiber and coax cable. Then you have the good old telephone one, digital subscriber line or DSL. Younger generations don't have an idea of what that is. (laughs) And then we have fixed wireless. So back to your question, if you can get the farmstead or a, a unit or a structure within the farm that gets fed with fiber, you can then beam wireless signal, assuming there's line of sight throughout the field. But if you do not have that fiber, that six lane highway to feed that tower where you're gonna beam the wireless, there's only so much data you can pack on a radio wave. And so you have to use a combination of technologies to really truly cover those areas when it comes to that. And just because you mentioned it, I need to clarify for our (laughs) listeners 5G will not solve the digital divide. 5G is a very high-frequency wireless signal that can provide very fast speeds. If you can equate megabits per second to miles per hour, we're looking at 25 miles per hour down and 3 miles per hour up. Fiber or 5G can offer 1,000 miles per hour. So you're talking very, very, very fast. But it has a very limited range.
1: With all these initiatives... Your personal opinion, positive outlook, negative, neutral.
2: So from Indiana perspective, they're doing the right things. We are moving in the right direction. For this $42.5 billion investment, it is once in a lifetime opportunity to really decrease the divide. Now, the digital divide is actually more a continuum because a divide implies it can be bridged. But because of literacy and devices and more and more applications coming out every day, you will always need to train people. So it's not a divide, it's a continuum. With that clarification, this $42.5 billion for the infrastructure piece, we're going to see how those maps roll out, and we're going to see how easy it is for communities to then receive those funds.
1: Well, I certainly learned a lot. Thank you so much. Thank Uh,
2: you for the opportunity.
1: Yeah.
2: Students can help a lot in two ways. One is helping educate their parents and their grandparents about what different broadband technologies can, can provide and cannot provide. That's number one. The other thing they can do is to spread the word and help complete speed tests. The more data we have, the more clear the issue can become from a planning perspective. So we need to just continuously, don't do a speed test now and then forget about it. The more data points we have, the better. Students can be a local broadband champion in the sense that they can be in their communities, with their colleagues, or with their families. We need broadband champions to help explain the situation. So that's the awareness piece that a student can play. The other one they can play is we have found that older folks tend to trust more their own family members when it comes to digital literacy. So they can also help with that. There's a 4-H program called Tech Change that did exactly that. Train teenagers to go train seniors on digital literacy. And if their family even better because then the senior is more likely to then receive that help. Right? Be open to it because there's a lot of issues there where people just don't want to acknowledge that they don't know something. So they're not going to show up to the library, to the class. They're not going to do this. They're not going to do that. But if it's a family member, which could be students, we need their help in that respect. So
1: we need that intergenerational, interfamily
2: yes. support. For the digital literacy piece and devices as well. When they come to support, they usually come to their grandkids or their mm-hmm. kids. If the kids have the patience, of course, because my teenagers do not have the patience with me. So.
1: Yeah, I've definitely had a couple arguments with my parents about closing apps and how to yeah. generally work any kind of device. Yeah,
2: exactly.
1: <laughs> I so. can relate to that. Thanks for
0: coming today. I certainly learned a lot about broadband. It's very interesting.
2: Thank you. It's an interesting topic, and there's a lot to be done for sure. So let us know. and We'll be happy to help in any way.